I heard a statement that I think kind of summarized something I've been thinking about for a while. And it was this. It was, why do grandparents always marvel at how their grandkids are growing up? Haven't they been around long enough? Don't they know that's what happens? <laughs> I chuckled at that. I think the reason why the older you get, the more you kind of marvel at growth and time going by is you begin to realize that your end is not too far away, that you're running out of time. And something begins to happen in us. I'm 45. Most likely, I've already peaked and I'm headed down the other side, right? Average age is 80. That's when most people die. So I'm, I'm past that average. So I'm running out of time now. And something begins to happen in us as you head that direction where you start having this kind of almost anxious thought like bucket list. I better kind of squeeze everything that I can out of life because it's escaping me. Why do we have that? I think the only answer that I've thought in my own mind is this. I think we know innately that we were never supposed to run out of time. So we marvel when we start running out of time, like, whoa, my goodness, kids are growing. What, you're driving now? I thought you were like two years old. When did you get a driver's license? <laughs> like, where did the summer go? How in the world did summer go by so fast, right? School is in two weeks. Like, that's crazy to me. School's in two weeks? Oh, my goodness, where did the summer go? Well, what happens is we begin to, like, know time is this commodity that was supposed to be endless, and something happened and terminated it, and that weighs on us. And it continues to weigh on us. And the older we get, the more we realize, hey, we're kind of running out of time. So chapter 25, it's kind of like that. It's like the time gets fast forwarded and there's all this kind of stuff crammed in here and you see it almost like, and when you read it and you study it, I think you're supposed to sense that. Like, this is not natural. It's not bad. And we have a hope, and we'll talk about that at the end, but still, there's something even unnatural about reading through Abraham's death and what happens with Ishmael and, and these kind of buttoning up of these things. This isn't the way we were designed. We were supposed to have eternity. That's actually been put in our hearts, Ecclesiastes says, that we can sense we are never supposed to have an end to this thing. And when we start to feel it, man, it weighs on us. So that's kind of chapter 25, but it ends really good. So let's go. The first, I think, 19 verses, 18 verses, to me, it's the rest of the story where we're leaving behind the Abraham story and we're entering now into the Isaac story, but there's some stuff that has to be kind of said. So, okay, let's get the rest of the story in Abraham and Ishmael. So that's what happens right away. Verse one, the rest of the story. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letshuim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. 
All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So if we go with the chronology of Genesis, Abraham would have been 140 years old when he marries Keturah. I guess he got on eHarmony, found her. Her name means spice. She was a spice girl. And he's like, yay, you're going to spice up my life. Come on. It's possible he gets married at 140. There's another possibility because it's in verse one, she's called his wife. And in verse six, she's called his concubine, like a Hagar. So it's possible that when Sarah was still living, he had taken Keturah as a concubine. And this is filling us in on that when Sarah dies, she then takes the position of a wife to Abraham. First uh, Chronicles 132 talks about it as well. So maybe that's what happened. I'm not sure. But here's what I love. When he is, knows his time is short, verse 5 and 6, Abraham begins to order his family. So he takes care of his sons, gives them gifts. I'm sure he's generous to them, does everything he can for them, Ishmael, these other boys. But Isaac, he guides them, guides him into the promise that God has for him. Here's what you're doing. Here's where you're staying. This is what's happening with you. I love that. That doesn't always happen. As a pastor, I have the opportunity to kind of be involved sometimes in these times of life. And sometimes when a dad dies, it actually breaks the family. So whatever kind of stress there was, the added stress of dividing up, prop, doing all this stuff breaks the family. My advice to people, to people when they're heading that direction is always, do not make one of your kids executor of your will. That's the worst thing you can ever do to your son or your daughter because they can never do right for everyone. And what will end up happening is the other siblings will hate the one that's executor of the will. I say, hire a lawyer to do that instead. People already hate lawyers. They're used to it. It's just like natural. Okay, fine. All right, I'm used to this. I can take it, no problem. Do that. Protect your kids. This is what I think Abraham's doing. I don't want Isaac to have to deal with all this. So I'm going to make sure that when I die, my house is in order. And when he does that, that works out pretty good. Look what happens, verse seven. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. This is the first time that term is used. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Ber Lahoira. So, it says a couple things that I love about Abraham. 
It says he died in a good old age. He started walking with God at 75. He walked with God for 100 years and dies. He's the only one in the Old Testament who is called the friend of God. And it says that he had a life full of years. His life was not cut short with stupid decisions or bad behaviors. It was a full of year life. But that term there can actually be translated a little bit different. It can be actually translated in the Hebrew, a satisfied life. That when he came to the point of death, he was satisfied. Almost like I think Paul writes in Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, where he says, man, I finished my course of joy. I'm ready. I've got nothing left to do. I've done everything I'm supposed to do, and I'm ready to be offered up. This is it. I'm crossing the finish line. I love that. I talked with a man yesterday for quite a while. He's about 80. He has a disease. Don't know if it's 10 months, 10 days, or 10 years. No one quite knows. But as I sat and talked to him, and we were talking and sharing stories and laughing and a little bit of crying, he said this probably five or six times. He said, Matt, I've had the best life ever. Matt, you don't understand. If I was to die right now, I've had the best life ever. Just gratitude kept just seeping out of him for my wife, for salvation, for family, for friends, just tons of gratitude. It was like an Abraham, full, satisfied life. A couple years before that, I met with this guy, and he had just visited Edgewater a couple times, and then he wanted me to talk to him. He was terminal. It was in the last stages of terminal cancer. So I just sat by his bed one day, and his wife was there, and he had this beautiful home on the river, well-accomplished, very, very successful man. I just sat and talked to him. And it was like he was still trying to cling to something. It was like he did not want to let go of life. Like he hadn't quite accomplished everything he wanted to. And, and the, the, I thought I'll be there an hour. It ended up being like two and a half, three hours long because it was almost like he didn't want me to leave. It was like, stay. I need, it was really, um, I don't want to use the term clingy, but it felt like that almost. Like I couldn't quite get away. I'm like, all right, well. And then it would start into something else. And, and at one point he said this, he said, I really, and his wife's in the room. She's kind of in and out, in and out. But she's in the room at this point. He's like, there's some things I really need to tell my wife. I just haven't. I'm like, bro, dude, you got to do it. He goes, I know, I know, I will, I will, I will. So I leave. I did the funeral for him. And then I asked his wife during the kind of, did, did you guys have a good talk? And she said, no, he couldn't do it. He couldn't have that talk. He couldn't leave rested. He couldn't leave with that shalom that I think you're supposed to have. Abraham, Abraham did. And I think this is the way that you do it. I think there's two things that have to happen if you want to die well. Number one, you have to be reborn. Like John chapter three, you have to be reborn. You have to know my eternity is secure. This chapter of life has closed, but I have complete confidence because of the resurrection of Jesus that a new, more brilliant chapter is opening. You got to have that right. And then number two, I think you got to have this, you have to have lived for Christ. You have to have been born in Christ and then you have to have lived in Christ and have your life shaped by him. And when Jesus shapes your life, something incredible happens. There is a 
Paul kind of moment where you just know I'm full of years. I've accomplished what I'm supposed to. I've finished my course. I've gratitude for what God has given to me. And it's brilliant and it's beautiful and you see it in Abraham. And I pray I have the same thing when my day is called that I could say I'm full of years and I'm grateful for what God has given me. Number two, notice this. Isaac and Ishmael come back together to bury their dad. Two sons who the last time we saw them together, there was mocking and fighting and division and problems. And yet the death of their dad brings these two boys back together. I've seen two things happen when a dad dies. Sometimes it, it actually bands the family together and it's really brilliant and it's really awesome and it's smooth and it's cool. And then sometimes when a dad dies, it just breaks the whole family apart. And the little fissures that were there before are magnified and then all of a sudden it's just issue and problem and it's hard and it's difficult and it's heartbreaking. And I think a lot of times, if it's banding together or breaking apart, it really was based on the character of the person who died. Like there is a, a future legacy at a funeral. How'd I live? If I live with a shalom, if I live with this kind of fullness of years and gratitude, it actually extends out into my family when I'm gone. That they band together almost based on the character. If you look at Abraham, Abraham was a peacemaker. Abraham was a guy that was patient. Abraham was a man that just demonstrated these great things that I think it brings his family back together. And I love that. I hate the bitterness and the, the, the bad stuff at memorials. It just breaks my heart. But here you've got them coming back together. To me at a funeral, the rubber hits, hits the road in a lot of ways in a person's life. That's your legacy. How's the family doing, right? So Abraham, period on his life. Ishmael's still been hanging out there. So here we get Ishmael's rest of the story. These are the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, he is called Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbiel, Midsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, great baseball player for the Yankees, <laughs> Nafish, and Kedamar. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. The reason why Ishmael is put in here is because God had made a promise to his mom in chapter 16. I'm going to make a great dude out of this guy. And then God had made a promise to Abraham in chapter 21. Don't worry about Ishmael. I got him. I'm going to make a great nation of him. And so this little phrase, it might seem like, oh, why all these names? Why all this stuff? This is telling the original readers 
a very important message. Because remember, this book was not written to us. It was written to slaves who had just been freed from Egypt, who are now in the desert wandering around, wondering who is this Yahweh that we're supposed to be following? Who is he? Does he keep his word? What if we're faithless? What if we make mistakes? Will he still keep his word? Ishmael was outside of God's plan. He wasn't part of God's plan, but God still made a promise to Ishmael and kept that promise to him, even though it was outside of God's plan. So this is telling these slaves, freed now, walking through the desert, hey, you made a mistake. You should have gone in the promised land, but know this, God will keep his promise to you, just like he did to Ishmael. The God of the past is the God of the present and the God of the future. We're supposed to hear that same thing in our hearts. God keeps his word, just like he did to Ishmael. Even if we've blown it, even if we've made mistakes, God remains faithful. It's brilliant. So now those things are taken care of. And now we move into Isaac's story. Isaac is the shortest of the big three. So God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Isaac, his story is a sliver. It's like overshadowed by his dad and then overshadowed by his son, Jacob. And he gets just this tiny little amount of stuff. It's almost like he's forgotten in a way. But Isaac's a very interesting guy. He's the only one of the three that's monogamous. He has one wife, never remarries, stays with her and her alone his whole life. Number two, he is the only one of the patriarchs, those three men, who never leaves the promised land. He stays put. This is where God has me, I'll stay here. Now he gets close, we'll see in the next chapter, but he never leaves the promised land. And then number three, he's the only one that has a divine name from birth. It's like God stamped him from the time he was born, he's my dude. So he, he's very, to me, in heaven, we're gonna find out a lot more about Isaac. And in chapter 31, it's actually, Yahweh is called the one whom Isaac fears. So there's a, there's, I think there's a behind the story. We don't get all the information about Isaac. He's a brilliant guy. But here's what we do learn. Number one, he has a couple of kids. Here's how. Verse 18, 19. I don't know if there's more light in here, but I'm 45. <laughs> and it's hard to read my Bible right now. I'm like, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. The, oh, <laughs> praise, let there be light. <laughs> Thank you. The daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Pan, Pad, Padan Aram, the sister of Laban. Laban's thrown in there because he comes back. He's an interesting match for Jacob. The Aramean to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to Yahweh for his wife because she was barren. And Yahweh granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her. And she said, if it is thus, if this is God's will, why in the world is this, this happening to me? We prayed and prayed and prayed. I'm pregnant. What in the world's happening? So she went to inquire of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you and they shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. 
Notice the similarities in Sarah and Rebecca. Right? They can't have kids easy. Sarah waits 70 years. Rebecca has to wait 20 years to have these boys. I think the message is simple. Children of promise are hard to produce. Children of promise are hard to produce. Isaac, Esau, Jacob, Samuel, John the Baptist, Franklin Graham, if you've read his testimony, children of promise are hard to produce. It takes prayer. 20 years, Isaac and Rebecca are praying to get pregnant. 20 years, children of promise are hard to produce. You have to persevere and you believe and you trust. And after 20 years of praying, they have twins. Now, do you think after Esau and Jacob are born, do you think they stop praying at that point? Whew, we're done, good. <laughs> if you know their story, no way. These two fight like brothers. I'll just put it that way. Do you have a brother? Do you ever fight with your brother? Oh my goodness, I had an older brother. Um, in every way, he was tougher, faster, stronger, and meaner than me. I and mean, we were not even, we're not in the same category. I played peewee, he played big ball, right? He held me down one time. I had braces. I had teased him or something. And he literally pushed my cheeks into my braces where I had to pull them out and chunks of my cheek came out. That was my brother, right? He was tough, mean, strong, fast. There was only one time I got him. When he was 18, he was in a bad ATV accident busted up his knee really bad. His leg was like three inches longer. Just cut. The only thing holding it together was the flesh. Had, had to repair it, was in this cast. He's on the couch. Um, we had a TV, no remote. It was when we finally got a TV and we were watching a show and I'm sitting there watching it with him and he's like, hey, change the channel. And like immediately, because I'm so used to like just obeying him, I'm like, okay. And I thought for a second, hey. And I sat back down. I said, no. He's like, dude, change the channel now. I'm going to, you're going to what? What are you going to do? Dude, I'll get better. I'm going to get you. Man, you got weeks, bro. And I'll be faster than you. From that day forward, because of his knee injury, I could outrun him. So from that point on, I could slap and run, like whack and just run off. That was my one way of getting my brother. But we fought, man. It was just like you as brothers, man, praying starts when your kids are born. Kids of promise are hard to produce. You just got to keep praying, telling them the prophecies about them, claiming God's word over them. You just got to pray because children promise are hard to produce. And Rebecca, remember, she's tough. Remember how she got picked? Would you get 200 gallons of water for my camels out of a deep well? Probably 40, 50 pounds each time she's lifting it up. That's 1,600 pounds of water. She moves, volunteers to do it. She's tough. Well, in this pregnancy, she's, she's like, what in the world? Pregnancy's tough in the first place, no doubt about it. I've been told at least. I agree. My wife, five kids, all natural. Five kids. On the second child, I went to the hospital and said, give me the epidural now. I'll take it. She doesn't want to, I give it to me. That's painful. I don't even want to watch this thing right? I mean, it's tough. And she's a tough woman. She's like, something is wrong inside of me. These kids are going crazy. And God gives this prophecy. 
hey, they're going to grow up. And when they grow up, they're going to be fighting. And the older is going to serve the younger. And you read this, and really it echoes throughout the Bible. What does this mean for Esau? What does this mean for Esau? God now is saying to Esau this, you're not the one. The Genesis 12 promise by which I'm going to redeem the world on which history is going to hinge, you're not the one in that. Your brother's the one. You lose out. Can you imagine that? How does Esau feel about that? How would you feel about that? Has God ever said no to you? Something you want to do, and God chooses someone that you think weaker, strong, you know, different. You're stronger, you're better. You, why, God, would you choose him for that? Why do you say no to me? And why do you choose him? That's unfair. And what does this mean for Esau? What's, when God says no, what do you do? Do you take your ball and be like, that's it, I'm going home, forget it, I'm out? That's what the enemy wants. I think there's a better way. And what you see is you see throughout scripture, God saying no to some people and their response is brilliant. Jonathan, the son of Saul, he knows I'm not gonna be king. This guy named David who just killed Goliath, he's gonna be king. You know what Jonathan does? He takes off his royal robe, read it. I think it's 1 Samuel chapter 18. Puts his royal robe onto David, takes off his sword and gives his sword to David. What he's saying is this, you're the man. You're the man. And I'm okay with that. David's told no. David wants to build a temple. That's his one desire. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. The one thing I want to do, I want to build you a house, God. And what does God say? What does David do? Does he pout? No, what you see David do is he starts to gather together all the silver and all the gold and all the material and everything to make sure that the next person that does do it succeeds. Okay, I may not be able to actually build it, but I'm gonna do everything I possibly can to make sure the next person can succeed in this. Man, that's big, really big. John the Baptist has asked, hey, are you the one, man? All these people are coming out and getting baptized by you? Bro, you gotta be the one. What does he say? No, I'm not the one. And John says this, I have to decrease and he has to increase. I'm going to go down so Jesus goes up. And Jesus says this about John the Baptist, it's Matthew 11. He says, there's no greater man born of women. That mentality, I'll decrease so he can increase. That's the greatest. Paul is told, no. Paul had one desire to save his brethren, the Jewish people. What does God say to him? Mm -mm. If you read Romans 9, it's, I will go to hell. Literally, that's what he says. I'll go to hell if I could see my Jewish brothers get saved. That's how passionate he was about it. And God said, no, that's somebody else. That's the apostle Peter. Your job is to go to the Gentiles. And so what does Paul do? He goes to the Gentiles and does it brilliantly. I think that's the better way. I think Esau had almost an opportunity here. And I'm not saying it's an easy opportunity. But if you read the New Testament, here's what you see. Jesus, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, Jesus gives one life hack. If you Google life hacks, you're gonna get a billion of them. 
best ab exercise, best vegetable to eat for a long life. You get, you get a million life hacks. My favorite is this. If, if you don't succeed, no, C, if there's a prize for the loser. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> there's all these, there, you just get millions of websites and millions of pages. There's, Jesus gives one. And it's Matthew chapter 20, verse 26 to 28. And he says this, if you want to be great in the kingdom, he's not against that. He's not saying, don't want to be great. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And he says, then he gives his mission statement. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think Esau was actually being given an opportunity here. An opportunity to say, you know what? The Genesis 12 promise to my grandfather is more than important than me. The, the redemption of humanity and the blessing of all nations, that's, more, that's bigger than me. And if it's not supposed to go through me, no problem. I'm going to support the one that it's supposed to go through. He's supposed to serve that way. And if he would have, he'd be one of the greats today. We'd have lots of Esau's running around. That serving is the way up. I think that's it. If you want a great marriage, you know what's built on? Two people serving each other. You, you want to be a great employer or an employee? Guess what that's built on? Serving each other. You want to be a great neighbor? You want to have a great neighbor? Guess what that's built on? Serving. Jesus' one life hack works in every area of life. So I think Esau was actually being presented with a way to be great. A hard way, no doubt, but a way to real, real greatness. We'll see, he doesn't choose it. But I don't think it's necessarily God saying, hey, I reject you. It's, this is going to be hard. Will you take it? And he says, no. And we'll see how that works. So verse 24, they're in the womb now. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body had a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau or Harry. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob sounds very close to heel. Isaac was 60, year old, 60, 60 years old when she bore them. So they're given birth. One is very hairy. Uh, Charity and I yesterday went over to the NICU at RBMC. And we didn't get there, to, we, we were busy, so we got there about nine o'clock at night. And um, we're in the process of bringing a baby that was born on Friday, his name is Harrison, uh, addicted to heroin. So they're weaning him off that. Um, and in the process, it takes, I don't we know how long it's gonna take, but that baby just needs to be held. He just needs to be held. I don't know if there's some ministry where people could go into the NICU and hold drug-addicted babies, but if there is one, get on it, because that is massive. That's what those babies need. They need to be held by somebody. That's all. You just hold them. Um, and very often what happens is the parents who are on drugs, they're not in the space to come in and hold their babies anymore. When they give birth and they're kind of told, well, you're not getting your baby, they're out. They're just devastated by it, and they're gone, and yeah, it's just, it's really super sad. So went to the NICU to hold Harrison. I brought uh, Hunter, who's his older brother, who we have right now. He's three and a half. When I told Hunter that his baby brother was born, he just said this. Yeah, I don't want him. Put him back. 
<laughs> I just cracked up. I'm like, well, I don't know if that's going to work, buddy. <laughs> I don't want to put him back. <laughs> okay. So he'll, he'll, he'll learn to love Harrison. So we go over there. We're in the NICU, and I'm just holding Hunter now because he, he fell asleep. And Charity's holding Harrison, and we're just we're talking with these nurses. These nurses are brilliant people. Man, pray for nurses in the NICU because I don't know of a more difficult place to be. And um, like th- this one, she was super awesome. She's like, it's hard for me to, to have empathy now. I've seen this so much. I've seen the same moms come in giving birth to two, three, four drug-addicted babies. It's just, it's hard for me now. My heart breaks for her because she's seen this all the time. But then, you know, she's joking. She's just really funny, funny gal. So it's just gregarious, awesome, fun time. And uh, we start joking around and she, she, we, I'm asking like, well, what's the smallest baby? And, you know, just doing those kind of questions. And what's the most interesting thing? She goes, oh, here's something that's interesting that happened. She goes, certain babies, uh, when they go through the stages in, in, in the womb, there's a point where they, they, they're really hairy. And it's also kind of genetic as well. And usually if they're full term, the hair just kind of slowly dissolves and they come out. Not, not hairy. But if they're born premature and they have a certain kind of genetic, they come out, she goes, they are hairy. <laughs> I'm thinking Esau, they're little Esau's. And she said this one parent was like, she, she had a very hairy, hairy baby. And she's like, um, you know, we'll always accept this baby and love this baby. And he is precious to us. But is he always going to be this hairy? <laughs> I just cracked up. She's like, no, it'll go away. Oh, thank God. <laughs> That's Esau. He's hairy. She's like, what in the world? I will love him, I think. But he's hairy. I mean, is he always going to be that way? Yes, Harry is going to always be this way. So here's their mistake. It's verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. (laughs) Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh-oh. They're playing favorites. So they're, they're playing favorites with these two kids, and they're sowing into them something. Isaac love, e, loves Esau because, hey, I got to eat his food. And we're going to find both Isaac and Esau make terrible, terrible, terrible decisions over a meal. Both of them do. That they're almost trained by their appetites and they end up really, really blowing it. If you're a parent or a grandparent, do not play favorites. You are setting up your kids. It will hurt them. It will destroy them. Don't do it. I love Dwight Eisenhower's mom. When Dwight Eisenhower was president of the United States, she had five boys. She was asked by a reporter, aren't you so proud of your son? Her answer, which one? I'm proud of all my boys. What a brilliant answer. She knew the danger of trying to point out, oh yeah, he's my favorite. Don't do it. It is a formula to destroy them. So you have really these two boys, red state, blue state, Republican, Democrat, metrosexual, dude that loves metallic on the other side. They're just polar opposites of people. 
Have you had multiple kids? The biggest surprise to me was this. We had Carissa. I kind of thought, okay, I got Carissa figured out. And then we had Isabella, and she was night and day from my first. I'm just like, oh, I thought I'd get this formula and just kind of chunk out kids, and it'd be great. We do the same thing with each. I just find every one of my kids is so radically different. Like one of my kids has such a strong will. When she was younger, she had such a strong will. I'd be like, okay, you blew it. You got to go to your room. She'd be like, good. <laughs> I'm going to go up there and read books. I'm like, I'm going to take all your books from you. Good, because they're on the floor. You'll clean up my room. I'll take a nap when you're doing it. I'm like, I'm taking your bed then. Good. I don't want to make my bed anymore. What? I'm taking your birthday. Good. I hate writing those thank you cards for gifts. So I don't have to do that anymore. Like, forget it. <laughs> I give up, right? Just, man, it's like, oh my goodness. And then the other one, I just look at her wrong. And she's like, oh, you looked at me. So you got to like, okay, really balance your, like how you deal with your kids because they're so radically different. And what's awesome is this. You're like learning these incredible image bearers of God. And that's a delight then. You're like, oh, it's surprising and shocking, but each one is like, man, with their strengths and their weaknesses, they're just an image bearer of God. And you get to enjoy them and help them in their strengths and, uh, or in their weaknesses and, and really emphasize and cherish what they're good at. So these two make a mistake. Favorite here, favorite there. And here's how it goes down. Verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom sounds close to red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Birthright was two huge things. He had double inheritance. So what they would do is they'd take all the money, and they divide it up into thirds. So the birthright holder would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the non-birthright holder would get one-third. So you got a double inheritance, and then you were the tribal leader. So it was both of those things. You became the clan, the, the patriarch was passed through you. So in the birthright, Jacob, for a bowl of stew, gets a double inheritance, and becomes the line through which Jesus is going to come. Now, there's been some really good deals in history, right? Long Island was bought for a necklace of beads, which is a total ripoff, yeah, right? It's taking advantage of people. Louisiana Purchase, massive real estate. Uh, Alaska, right? Bought for nickels, right? There's been some great, this is the best deal ever, bowl of soup for the birthright. But there's two failures that go into this. The first failure is Esau. Esau comes in, and remember what Esau was really good at? Hunting. What did he fail at here? Hunting. What did his dad love him for? Hunting. So Esau 
His value as a son to his father was what? His ability to hunt. So he'd been told for years, man, Esau, I love your hunting, man. You're the best hunter in the world. Then he goes out, he tries to hunt. He fails at what his identity is, fails at what he feels he's good at, fails at what makes him Esau to his dad. And he comes home exhausted. I don't think it's just physical exhaustion. I think it's also spiritual and emotional and identity exhaustion. Ha, <sighs> what am I now? I didn't hunt well today. Ha, <sighs> depressed. Mmm, uh, right? You gotta be careful about what you say you're, you love in your kids. Because what if they end up not being good at that? So I remember a long time ago, my wife asked me this. She said, it is a, you know, a casual conversation. Why do you love me? Yeah, you're like, oh. I don't know if there's a good answer to that. If I say because she's beautiful, yeah, you're shallow. There you go. Or what, what if she gets into an accident? Or what if something happens to her? Then do I stop loving her? No. What if I said, well, because you're a really good cook. And she's a really good cook. Best lentil stew in the world. I'd trade my birthright for it. <laughs> what if she all of a sudden decides to go vegan and gluten-free and no sugar and all that? Then I won't love her anymore. <laughs> right? <laughs> what if I say, it's your style. I just love your style. Which I do. What if she goes hipster and wants me to wear man prees or something? <laughs> what do I do then, right? So I, I just said this. I said, I love you because I love you. And that's never going to change. You could change. You could change your hair. You could change your style. You could change the way you cook food. It's not going to change. I love you because I love you. That's the way you're supposed to treat our kids. That's gospel love. God doesn't say, I love you, Matt, because you're really good at. God just says, I love you because you're my son. I love you because I've decided to love you. And my love for you will never, ever change. That's gospel love. So Esau was almost set up for this failure by the fact that his dad was doing something to him and almost like, this is why I love you. You're such a great hunter. And then he fails at that. His worth and value evaporates. So that's the first failure. Then Jacob, his failure is this. He doesn't love his brother, does he? Your brother comes in, he's depressed, he's exhausted, and you take advantage, you exploit him to make this prophecy come true, like God needs his help. We'll talk about more about that in chapter 26, because Isaac does the same thing. Actually tries to make God's word not come true. So he exploits his brother at a moment of weakness. You failed, your identity isn't there. Okay, I wonder personally, has Jacob done this a number of times? My brother's been out hunting. I wonder if he failed. I'm gonna cook some stew in case he comes home and I'm gonna work him. I wonder about that because he's a conniver. If this was just the one time it worked, yes, he's exhausted and he failed. I can do it now. I don't know. But he exploits his brother because he's weak. Instead of trusting God, God, you said this, and I'm going to trust you're going to make it happen. Instead, he goes for it, gets the birthright, loses his family, and ends up having to leave and never see his mom again. Those are the repercussions of what Jacob does right here. So he fails. So what's our hope? Because if I think about myself, I've been Esau at times. I've been Jacob at times. 
The hope is this, and I've said this, and I'll say it again. My hope is that God writes straight with crooked lines. The crooked lines of some of my decisions and poor things that I've done, God still takes all them and says, I'm going to write straight with those. I'm going to get you exactly where I want you to be. Whether you're acting like Esau or Isaac or Jacob, trust me. Our hope always comes back to Jesus. Our hope is in him. Jesus, I made a mistake. Jesus, I don't want to be this way. Jesus, help me. And that's the reason why we take communion so often, because we're supposed to remember him. Not our sins, not our failing, not how good we've confessed, not how worthy we are. We're supposed to remember him. And we're supposed to say, Jesus, take this weak, take my crooked lines and draw straight with them. Draw straight with me, redeem me and change me. So we're going to take communion and we're going to pray that. So Jesus, forgive us for our failings as parents, <laughs> the tendency to show favoritism or just make mistakes with our kids. We plead your covering on the kids and grandkids that are represented by the folks in this room. That you would write straight with the crooked lines of our parenting. We pray for ourselves, Lord. We thank you that when we're weak, you're strong. We thank you that what the enemy means for evil, you can turn for good. We thank you that there is a Genesis 12 promise of kingdom coming that will not be thwarted or changed. You will accomplish it. And we hold on to those things. And so this night, Lord, as we partake, may we be a people who remember you, our hero, the author, the writer, and finisher of our faith. So may we go from here better knowing the hope that we have in you. I pray this in your name. Amen.